Well, good day, everybody, and welcome back to the extras. My name is Sam, and I'm Jack, and it's great to be with you again this week as we dive into your questions out of uh, last Sunday at church. Uh, that's what we do here on the extras. Uh, we try and tackle all the things that have been raised by God's word and, and get stuck in and have a good, good long think. And there's some great questions coming up today, Jack. Um, can you give us a bit of a, a recap before we get into them, though, as to where we were in case people missed out on Sunday? Sure thing. So we're in our series in the book of Genesis. Our passage on Sunday was Genesis 26, which is this account about Isaac, the son of Abraham, how he wanders through the land as a nomad, digging wells, fighting with local rulers, lots of uh, scary stuff that Isaac was facing. And you get the sense that Isaac was a, a, a a man prone to fear. A few times he's, he's pretty scared of what's going on around him. He's afraid of the local king Abimelech. So he lies about Rebecca, his wife, says that she's his sister. All through this, you have uh, the wonderful words of God who tells Isaac not to be afraid. So we heard this, this, yeah, this beautiful vision of a God who's committed to bless, uh, who's present with his people, uh, who means that though there's lots of scary things around, we who are his have nothing to fear. Mm. Yeah, nice. Um, so we've got, we've got a, 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 quite a few questions coming out of that. Um, we've also got a question to kick us off, kick us off with this morning. Um, out of the, the previous week's episode, one of the, the great things is that people keep, keep uh, watching uh, our weekly services up on YouTube. And, um, and that's nice. We're getting people um, question, sending in questions from, from previous episodes. So we're going to do our best to kind of uh, keep, keep working through those. So please send stuff in if, if you are watching and you've got questions. Um, so we'll kick off with this one, and uh, it's actually out of the the week before's episode. Uh, it's it's it says you say uh, that God has sovereign power, and in other parts that God is love. So how is it loving when people are born into places like Saudi Arabia, where the percentage of Christians is very low, uh, and some are born in America or Australia, where the percentage is much higher? Uh, would love it if you could get back to me. Um, yeah, Jack, what you got any thoughts in terms of addressing this question from from two weeks ago? Yeah, great question. Thanks for sending it in. Uh, this comes back to Genesis 25, where we saw these two boys born, Jacob and Esau. And then we looked at how the, the Apostle Paul picks up on, on that story in Romans chapter 9. And he makes the point that God makes this choice. He, he chooses to pass over Esau, the firstborn, and he sets his uh, his, his sights, his purposes on Jacob, the younger brother. Mm. And Romans 9 says, uh, you know, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, uh, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. So all of this is pointing to God's sovereign power to choose. That's just a recap of the background. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, so the question is, how, how is that loving if God is choosing some and not others? And, and I guess even sort of to sharpen that a bit further, um, how is it uh, loving if um, people are sort of born into a place where they're not going to have opportunity to be chosen? Yeah, again, and yeah, a really good question. And um, I think it's a weighty one. I certainly feel the weight of it. There's a lot of things to, to say here. Uh, to start with, uh, God's love is not bound geographically. Uh, it's not the case that God loves people in Australia more than he loves those who live in Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, even before we talk about God's saving, uh, merciful covenant love, if you like, God shows his love to the whole world. The fact that uh, anyone is alive is an expression of the love of God. The fact that uh, 
you know, it rains and, and crops grow and, and life goes on. Uh, and the fact that we experience uh, the goodness of, you know, relationships and family, all those things are expressions of the love of God uh, in his, his common grace, which I think we talked a bit about last week, Sam. Yeah, we, we um, had that, I think, a couple of weeks. But yeah, absolutely, that, that's part of the grace of God. Um, it's not, God's love is not limited only to salvation, but actually in every provision that he has for, for his, and, and care for his creation. Exactly. So that's the first thing to say. God's sovereign love, yeah, covers the world in that sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, the question is asking about that more focused sense that God sets his particular affections to love and save yep. some. Yep. I mean, on that question, it's interesting. I mean, for starters, um, I wouldn't want to say that uh, God's power to, to, lay, to, to save and choose is restricted by the percentage of Christians that there may be in a particular country. Mm. If there's one Christian in somewhere like Saudi Arabia who is keen to love and serve and, and take the gospel to others, then God can use that person to, to save. I mean, even if there are none, like we hear stories again and again of uh, these really intense Muslim countries in the Middle East where, you know, people see a vision of Jesus in a dream. And that's the thing that spurs them to get online and go and check out the Bible and, and they become a Christian that way. Like it's, it's not just the, the, the mere percentage of how many Christians there are that restrains God's love in that sense. Yeah. So, so there's a sense in which sometimes I think we, we think that, I mean, God, God graciously includes us in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but at the same time, God is not bound um, he can save even um, beyond us at one level. He, like, he, he will graciously use us, but he, he's powerful to, to save anyone that he, that he chooses to, to save. Is, is that fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, he uses means, but there's, there's nothing that restrains his, mm. his capacity to work like and, that. And particularly, I guess we want to say, not, um, scale doesn't necessarily mean that God can't, or lack of scale doesn't mean God can't work, um, which, which makes sense if you sort of rewind right back to when God came to earth chose 12 blokes and then said righto go to the ends of the earth making disciples you know and surely i'll be i'll be with you to the end of the age there, there was no scale at that point um and yet through through those 12 and the, the, the work of the spirit and the, the grace of god the world has been changed for christ and, and people have been saved in every nation just starting with 12 so so numbers sort of at one level they're nice but they don't they don't sort of they're not the, the key element is that i think yeah exactly right so maybe to, to sum up, how is it loving when someone's born in a place where there are less Christians? The starters, God is always loving to all people in every nation. Uh, and secondly, uh, God's power to, to love and choose and save people isn't restricted by the, the numbers that are around. And I mean, the way that God shows that love to people is he does spur the heart of Christian people to, to go to the places where there aren't many other believers around mm. to go and, and take the saving message of Jesus. Yeah, and, and that's that's a helpful place to finish, perhaps. I think because it's good to, to feel that if if, if you can see a, 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 you're aware of a place in the world that that has need for the gospel, that that's a good thing to feel. And and maybe rather than sort of think, come on, God, what are you going to do about it? Um, sort of like Isaiah when when uh, God comes to him and says, "Who will go?" and he says, "Well, send me." Um, there's a sense in which actually we, we can go to those places and uh, and take the gospel that we've been graciously given with us as as we go. Yeah, exactly right. We all need to hear that, that call. Send me. That's it. That's it. Okay. Uh, so thanks for that question. Uh, we, we're going to shuffle along here. And uh, we've got a, another question here uh, about 
uh, about last week's talk. So a uh, big point of that talk was God promises to bless uh, and uh, he's, he's committed to blessing. He, he's sort of uh, determined to bless us was, was sort of the big theme of last week. Um, but what is the role of Abraham's obedience in all this blessing? Um, verse 5 of chapter 26 um, really makes a point of this um, in terms of God almost explicitly saying, because Abraham obeyed me, therefore I'm blessing. Is it is it conditional on Abraham's obedience or this blessing, Jack? Yeah, a really great pickup. This is something I didn't get to, a chance to dig into in the talk for the sake of time, but it's it's really key and I'm glad we get to talk about it now. Mm. When when God speaks to Isaac, there is this, uh, the, the way he talks is that the, the blessings that Isaac will receive are flowing out because Abraham obeyed. So that's what verse 5 picks up on. Yeah. We also see it in verse uh, 24. So when God appears to Isaac the second time, he says, I will bless you and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Mm. So twice in this chapter, you have God making promises to Isaac because Abraham obeyed God. And I take it that the, the particular thing that uh, God is referring to here is, is Genesis 22, which is the, the account of, of, of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we, we preached about that last year. And I mean, that's an that's a amazing and heavy passage in itself. But the thing that happens at the end of Genesis 22, Genesis 22 verse 16, after God provides the ram for the sacrifice that just randomly comes out of the bushes and, and Isaac's life is spared, Verse 16, God says, I swear by myself, because declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you mm. and make your descendants as numerous as the star in the sky. Mm. So you have God's word, God's word there saying, because you obeyed, you were willing to do even this. I didn't make you go through with it, but because of your faith, mm. how much you trusted this promise, what you were willing to do, I will surely bless you. Mm. There does seem to be this... Uh, in a, in a sense, it's yeah, it's a, it's a conditionality. God says, you did this, so I will bless. The interesting thing is that thereafter, this doesn't seem to be the way God speaks going forward. So God doesn't say to Isaac, okay, if you, you know, obey me and do whatever, I will bless you. To Isaac, he says, no, because Abraham did. In that moment, God made this, 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 this oath. That's the language that gets used from this point on. God swore by himself. From this point on, God is going to be faithful to this binding promise that he's made. And Abraham's obedience wasn't irrelevant to that. Mm. So how do we think about that theologically? Because I think for many of us listening, we're like, okay, I can see that in the text, but I know that my theology tells me, and, and actually other bits of the Bible tell me, that actually it's, it's not by works, it's all by grace, but it feels like Abraham's done a work here. And that, that, is that, is that contributed to his salvation? And, is, is, and therefore, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, oh, therefore the Old Testament is different. The Old Testament's saved by works, but it's in the New Testament saved by grace. And we've got all these thoughts running around. How, how do we... How do we order them? Yeah, that's exactly the right next question to ask. So thank you. It's important to remember, I guess, the order of just how Genesis flows out. The very first thing that happens between God and Abraham is God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, go to the nation I'll show you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you uh, this great nation. Before Abraham ever does anything, God comes to him and, and gives him this promise. So right from the start, you can see that there's this, this unconditionality to what God is saying. Mm. doesn't depend on Abraham. God just says, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. 
And then as you go on, uh, there does seem to be this sense in which Abraham's obedience is required as a, as a response to God's word. Mm. So God goes, as, as the, the narrative goes on in Genesis 15 uh, and 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, which is interesting. Like it started off as a promise and then God makes a covenant, this kind of binding, you know, yeah. uh, agreement, this treaty, which doesn't seem to add anything. It just seems to be another way of kind of saying, yeah, making it more sure, if you like. Yep. And the covenant requires God's, um, Abraham's obedience. Like Genesis 17, Abraham's told, you must circumcise yourself and your sons. There's this response that's required. Yep. And then the ultimate response that Abraham is required to give is in Genesis 22. You know, take your son, your only son whom you love, offer him as a sacrifice. Mm. But all the while, God's word stands. Like that was the first thing that happened. That was the thing that stretches over the whole rest of the narrative. Mm. So I think theologically, it's... God's the one who takes the initiative. God's the one who, you know, the salvation, his covenant, his promises, it all depends on him. He's the one who does it. So it doesn't require anything of us in that sense. Uh, And the way the New Testament talks about it is, you know, we are justified by faith. We're declared right with God, not because of what we do, only because of what God has done for us in Christ. But the New Testament doesn't tell us that we then have no part to play at all. It's not like what we do is irrelevant. We're called to respond in faith to the gospel and that faith must flow out in, in obedience. Um, like, uh, like James says, uh, James chapter 2, you know, faith without works is dead. Yeah. The kind of faith that has responded rightly to God's uh, saving initiative is the faith that, that flows out in obedience. Mm. Romans chapter 1, which we, we looked at last year in church, actually um, kind of ties those two very closely together and, and actually talks about the obedience of faith. Uh, that, that, that's the sort of the centerpiece of, of, of our response. It's not um, faith which kind of then leads out to obedience. It's the obedience of faith, as if trust in itself is, is sort of the, the, the only right response that you can give to what God has done to you. It's, it's sort of the obedient response to God is to trust him. That, that those two things are sort of just really tightly wrapped together there in Romans. Yeah, and to bring that um, maybe full circle back to Genesis 26, God's saying, I'm going to bless you, Isaac, because I've sworn to Abraham, because he obeyed. Mm. But even Abraham's obedience came from the faith which Mm. God gave him. Genesis 15 talks about how Abraham hears the word of the Lord, and that's the thing that gives him faith. So it is in the big picture, it's all God's saving purposes flowing out. But he can even say, because Abraham obeyed, uh, that's how important obedience is in the the administration of God's purposes, the actual doing of it. Yeah, that's that. I mean, Genesis 15 has that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That that, that beginning, that that faith and trust in God is is sort of what God then says, right over that. That's you being righteous right there. That's your obedience of faith, uh, and and on that basis, which is all by grace, God then commits Himself to the generations that come. Yeah, that's right. All right. Very good. Uh, let, let's uh, push on uh, a bit further with, with uh, a question about wealth, um, which is that in Genesis we've seen Abraham and then last week we saw Isaac receiving blessings from God in very sort of material ways, land, assets, worldly wealth. Um, come to the New Testament though, Jesus talks about the futility of worldly riches um, and sort of warns quite strongly um, in, in, on, on those topics. Why so different? Why is the New, New Testament so apparently negative on, on wealth and the Old Testament seems so sort of apparently positive? Is, is, that, is that correct or have we missed something here? How, how do we think, think it through? Another great question. There's a lot of issues here. Uh, there's a few things we can try and tease out. The first is to yeah, clearly note there is uh, a, a change between the Testaments. So 
definitely Old Testament. There is this real significance to uh, to, to riches, uh, like it, just in the passage, chapter twenty six, verse thirteen, makes it really clear. I love this verse. Like it, like in Hebrew, it literally reads, "The man became wealthy, and he continued to become wealthy." until he was very wealthy. Like it's, it's the same word kind of three times. It's yeah, like, just yeah. in case you missed it, like this guy is loaded. Yeah, That's yep. sort of the point it's making. Yep. Um, but yeah, then you get to Jesus and he says, you know, sell everything, leave it, come follow me. Um, you know, he says to the, the man who uh, builds his barns and uh, builds bigger barns so he can store more stuff. You know, I've got lots of good things stored up for many years, great times. Uh, and God says, you fool, yep. you know, your very life will be demanded of you. I think part of, answering this question is realizing that there's not, I don't think the uh, distinction is that stark. It's not like the Old Testament is like, yay, physical wealth all the way. And the New Testament is physical bad. No, it's all spiritual now. Mm. There is uh, a change, I think, but it's not that stark. So for example, Jesus does say um, those things we mentioned, but he also says in, I think it's Luke 16, he has this, this is funny passage, the parable of the shrewd manager yeah. but the point of it jesus makes is that uh you need to use money to uh, uh luke 16 verse 9 i tell you use world, worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone you'll be welcomed into eternal kingdoms yeah jesus does say there is a place for the use of money in the christian life yep. and you see that throughout the new testament as well people uh like in the the letters to the thessalonians paul's often saying you know you should work with your hands so that you uh, so that you have something for yourself, so you're not a burden to the rest of the community. Like it's right for Christians to work, so that we don't become, uh, you know, in poverty and uh, require everyone else's help. I mean, Sam, you mentioned other places where we yeah, um, see things like 4, that. Ephesians four picks up that idea. You know, the, um, the thief should, the one who's been stealing, should uh, stop stealing and and uh, start to work with their own hands, so that they'll have something to, to share. So that the picture there is not just not only self-provision, which is certainly the 1 Thessalonians 4 kind of idea, but even more than enough so that you've got something to be generous with. Um, so there, there seems to be a sense in which we, we, we should aim for an abundance, not, not for selfish reasons, but for sharing reasons. Exactly. So I think the picture in the New Testament is wealth's not an intrinsically bad thing. Like it's a part of life. It's something to be used for good godly purposes. The thing that Jesus rebukes is the, the ultimacy of money yeah. like you can't serve god and money you can't put it on that level yeah that kind of that level of idolatry of worshiping money and making that your whole goal in life and and that's not a new thing in the new testament like i think the old testament paints pretty much the same picture there's there's this importance given to money but the old testament still says you know the ten commandments tell us do not covet uh, you see all through the proverbs there are these warnings about the folly of mm. putting your trust in silver and gold things that yeah. that won't last ecclesiastes kind of captures that up yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Money is, you know, it's this vaporous thing. It's, it's vanity. It's vanity. That's yeah, the Ecclesiastes futile. vibe. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So why so different? In a sense, I don't think there is uh, necessarily a huge difference between what the Old and New Testament are saying. The difference is that uh, the Old Testament emphasis on physical wealth as the primary kind of picture of blessing, I think that is the thing that, that does give way in the New Testament. Mm. And like lots of things, the Old Testament speaks in, in these physical, earthly, tangible categories. And the reason it does that is to prepare us for the spiritual things that will be revealed in Christ. Mm. So Galatians chapter 3, I think, makes this point about the blessing promised to Abraham. So uh, I'm, uh, I should have looked this up a bit earlier, mm. better before, but... Um, 
Galatians chapter 3 from verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So that's the Genesis promise. Abraham was promised, you know, all nations will be blessed through you. Next verse. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Mm. You get this picture that it's the, and then he goes on to say, you know, he starts talking about justification by faith and all the blessings of salvation that have come through Jesus. The way that Paul reads Genesis is, yes, like for him it was, you know, it was the blessing was measured in cattle and sheep. Uh, but all of that was uh, pointing forward to something. It was giving us this sense of, yeah, God's blessing is this lavish, extravagant, wonderful thing he's going to do. And we who live the side of the cross now realize that the ultimate form of God's blessing is the fact that he's, he's justified us. He's made us right with him. He's given us eternal peace with him. Yeah. All of those physical things pointed forward to the even greater spiritual blessings to come. Yeah. And we see God doing that on, on other categories too. Like when it comes to the temple and the tabernacle, he gives us a physical reality to, to, to paint for us a picture of the spiritual thing that will, will be sort of made clear once the fullness of time of the, the new covenant arrives. And so there's a sense in which we understand from that tent with its forecourt and later that the temple with its forecourt and then with its most holy place where you can only enter because of a sacrifice of blood. And that physical reality uh, shows us something of the, the spiritual reality of coming to God um, in Christ and in, with all of the blessings of the New Testament. So there's a sense in which the physical sort of almost paints the picture and prepares the spiritual, uh, which is sort of similar to what you're saying in terms of the blessing kind of, if we switch categories to blessing, it's physical in the old, giving way to spiritual in the new. Um, but then interestingly, the, the new creation is, as we've been saying over the last few weeks, um, still a very physical and tangible place that we'll experience um, w- when we get there. Um, but like, it'll, you know, streets of gold and glorious, well, that's all the imagery that the, uh, that the, the, the revelation picks up, for instance. Um, but it, it sort of feels like that as awesome as that's going to be, and it's going to be pretty awesome, um, it's, it's going to be dwarfed even by the, the sense that we'll be with God and we'll, we'll you know, be with him without sin and, and have all of our tears wiped away and, and, and be in perfect communion and relationship with God. That's ultimately the better thing, even though heaven's going to be this place of bounty and you know, a great feast and of, of all sorts of riches that we can't even imagine. That's right, yeah. The, yeah, the physical riches... They're kind of emphasized in the Old Testament. Maybe they're, they're kind of less in this part of our New Testament age. But yeah, one day the physicality is coming back in a big way and yeah. the blessings will be, uh, yeah, realized in, yeah, in the bounty, as you say. Yeah. And I think that's important. Like it helps you see kind of where the focus of God's kingdom is over the different parts of the Bible, maybe. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, part of the significance of wealth is like the people of Israel were this nation. Mm-hmm. Like... Abraham's building up this wealth because he's going to be given a people. And one day, you know, the nation of Israel will have this, these stockpiles of gold and the temple will be plated in, in gold as a symbol of God's presence with them. For us in the New Testament, though, we know that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And he makes a point of his kingdom has come to supplant all of the earthly kingdoms of the day. Yeah. So now a physical kind of wealth is not something that marks the, the kingdom of God in the same sense it did mm. in the Old Testament. But the kingdom, when it's fully realized, when Jesus comes back, that will be that, you know, all of the other kingdoms of the world will be smashed once and for all. And all of the blessings, physical and spiritual, will be kind of located in one place. They'll all be focused on Jesus and, and his people and us with him. Mm. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, one last question to go. So we'll, we'll finish up on this one. Um, uh, someone's been reflecting on, on 1 Peter 2.12 in light of last week's talk, um, which talks about living such good lives among the pa- pagans that they, they sort of... Um, 
uh, see your good deeds, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Is that? Oh, sorry, have I got the right verse there? I think I, I, think I do. Um, that's the one, yeah. That, that's the one, yeah, good. I was just doing that from memory and I didn't have my notes in front of me. I thought, oh, gee, I, hope I've, I hope I've done the right one. Um, asking the question, how, how can our living in obedience to God amongst pagans provide opportunities to share the gospel? Um, this is something we saw in Genesis last week with Abimelech noting that, that God was with Isaac. And, uh, and you made the point, Jack, that for us, you know, serving, you gave the example of, of our being generous in this time where most people are being a bit selfish and, and hoarding. We're, we're, we're trying to encourage people to be generous and give, uh, encouraging people to give to Anglicare at the moment. Um, and you made the point that, that that's a, a profound witness. Um, this person's just pondering that and asking that the how does that work question. How does me living in obedience to God provide an opportunity to, to share the gospel? Yeah, great question. Love, love, yeah, love that someone's trying to think this through and I think what it could look like. So we're saying a bit more about the, yeah, the how, I think, the mechanism of this. It's a, kind of one verse there in, in Peter. Uh, another passage in the New Testament that fleshes it out a bit more is Titus chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Titus 2 is this wonderful picture of kind of the family of God, men and women, young and old, all serving and teaching each other to, to live godly lives in different ways. And there's this refrain throughout uh, Titus 2 that, that speaks about the link between Christians living godly lives and what the rest of the world looking on thinks. So you see in chapter 2, older women are teaching younger women a certain kind of way of relating in the home, purpose clause, so that no one will malign the word of God. Mm. So you have the the risk is if people don't live these upright godly lives, then people will look on and say, hey, this gospel doesn't look so great. Like, look how badly these people are living. So there's this this negative uh, flip side to 1 Peter 2, if you like. If Christians aren't living good lives, then the, the rest of the world looking on will... Will, will not want anything to do with that. They'll, you know, to, to disrespect uh, Jesus and the gospel because the people who claim his name don't seem to be living a, an upright and respectable life. Mm. That's part of the picture. You see a similar thing in Titus 2 verse 8. So the young men are being taught to be self-controlled so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Yeah. So again, saying the same kind of thing, you know, those who are looking on and say, wow, actually these people who we, we don't like what they have to say, but gee, they live very impressive lives. We can't fault their, their goodness. Mm. And then you get the positive in verse 10. So slaves are being taught to, to obey their masters so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our savior, attractive. In other translations, it talked about adorning the gospel. Yeah. So this is, a, I like this picture. It's like the you imagine the gospel is like this this jewel, this diamond, and the Christian's life is meant to be like the, the setting. You know, it's like the, the little gold housing in the ring that kind of holds forth the diamond. Like the, the gospel is a precious thing, but the Christian's life can, can, uh, uh, can, can beautify it, if you like, can make it seem even more uh, compelling, attractive. It's, it's like I said on Sunday, uh, you know, people look on and see, wow, like I want to be a part of that. I want to have what these people have. Yep. Um. Yeah, so I mean, let's think a little bit about what that means in practice, I guess. Mm. Uh, what is this not saying? It's not saying all you got to do is just focus on living a good life and then people will look at that and say, oh, wow, that's good. I guess I, I want to do that. I guess I'll become a Christian right now. Like, it's not like this is kind of making ma- the gospel of, irrelevant. Yeah, magic evangelism that you just live. I mean, St. Francis of Assisi sort of said that. He said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, which sounds like a nice thought on the first time you, you hear it. But actually, when you think about it, it's sort of saying that people will somehow become Christian just by seeing good deeds 
rather than actually hearing anything of what God has done for them. And you sort of think, oh, hang on, that probably doesn't work. Exactly, yeah. It's not, yeah, Christianity is not just about becoming nice. Like, mm. that's, that's maybe all that bare good works could do. Yep. It's about the gospel, yeah. People need to hear the transforming news of the gospel. But the point is that our living in obedience can open doors for that gospel. Yeah. Um, on the negative side, if we don't live good, respectable lives, we can close doors as we drag Jesus' name through the mud and point people away from his goodness. I mean, like how uh, sad has it been to watch that happen in our society over the last, you know, decades and especially mm. as it's come to light in, you know, the Royal Commission into institutional child abuse. Like when those who claim the name of Christ do awful things, yeah. the rest of the world looks on and says, what are you people doing? How can your message be worth listening to at all? Like, look at how you live. That's right. And so that, um, that, uh, that means they have something bad to say about us as to use Titus language as, uh, Titus's language rather than adorning the gospel. Exactly. Yeah. So the call for us is like Isaac to to live in a way that shows God blessing uh, with us and, and that people say, yeah, I can see God is with you. I want to I want to be a part of that. And yeah, like you said, I think that the current Anglicare drive is a, a great way that we could do something like that to show really practical love and care for, for others that the rest of the watching world might look on and say, hey, yeah, great yeah. to see you doing something good and yeah, generous. Like, wow, what, what, why? I think that's the thing. Like our good deeds can provoke the why question. That's right. And like, then, why would you live that way? I feel like there's got to be more to say here. There's your gospel opportunity. Beautiful. Yeah. Which then leads to, and, and to go back to, to 1 Peter 2, which is where this question sort of began. Um, 1 Peter 2 talks about us being a, a holy people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. And it's, then it says, so that you may declare the praises. And so the purpose, I guess, that, that God has saved us for is that we would declare. Um, so these these opportunities that, that our good behavior, that our holy living um, provide, give us the opportunity to declare God's praises and say, he is the reason, he is the one that I that, that drives me to, to live this way. And I think that's where we sort of see these things coming together, where, where the, the godly behavior gives way to an opportunity to, to speak and to make a declaration of, of the gospel. Yeah, so that's our encouragement to you this week. Go out and live good lives and be ready to, to answer the why question when, when God willing it comes. Awesome. Okay, that's it for questions today. Uh, we've got a minute or two before we finish, so we want to do a quick look ahead to this coming Sunday. Uh, Jack, where are we heading in Genesis? So we're moving on to Genesis chapter 27 this week. Two weeks ago, we saw how Jacob wrestles Esau out of his birthright. Mm -hmm. Genesis 27 is sort of like part two to that story where we see Jacob wrestle Esau out of his blessing. This is uh, an, an, yeah, an amazing story, but kind of a, a sickening one as well. It's this twisted tale of family rivalry and deceit. And yeah, it's, it's a dysfunctional family uh, to say the least. And behind all of that, we see the wonderful consistency of God working out his purposes. And yeah, we meet God who can even bring goodness out of a mess like this. Mm. Nice. Okay, so if you're reading along at home and you want to prepare for church, it'd be helpful if you read from Genesis 26, verse 34. You can go all the way through to chapter 28, verse 9, and that'll sort of cover the chunk that we're planning to look at this week, and you'll be able to get into this story of, uh, of sort of wrestling uh, and deceitfulness and, and, yeah, Jacob really living up to his name at this point. It's a great story. We're going to have some fun, but, yeah, the, the truths here are wonderful too. So yeah. may God use this to bless you. Awesome. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate all your work amongst us. And uh, that's it from us today. We will see you at church uh, on Zoom and uh, online this weekend. See you there. See you then. <laughs>